system so that when we go to Israel, we'll be able to do some filming and things will actually uh, actually work. Instead of learning, I tried some things when I was there last week and they didn't quite work. We're, we want to try to film the Bible studies in all the different places and get those uh, where they we can we can post some of them. Hmm. The, the the movies wouldn't, the video wouldn't, but it worked just fine on the, you know, I could play it on the iPhone or I could play it on the iPad, but when, I don't, it, it, well, it was a camera, other stuff, so it's uh, odd. It's one of those tech problems. Okay, a couple of announcements this coming Sunday, remember, we're going to have a couple of graduates from uh, high school, and so we're going to honor them and have a little reception after uh, after the morning service on Sunday, so uh, be prepared for that. And then also looking forward to uh, July 1st, which is a Sunday where we'll have a uh, covered dish dinner here, and then um, we will uh, have a prayer time for our nation afterwards. And it uh, we certainly need it. Of course, today is uh, was primary. I hope that... Uh, Everybody went down and voted in the primary today, and uh, as I said when I went in, I'm always going to vote for the right person. <laughs> it is far right as I can. I, just, I don't know about where y'all went to vote, but when I went to vote, there were these two little lonely people at this table on the. Uh, they should have been on the left side, but they were on the right side. And uh, no, nobody was going over to that table. Everybody was going to the other one. And when I left, I said, what are you all doing over there? I said, well, we're the Democrats. <laughs> so I was, I guess, you know, I didn't even know the Democrats knew there was a primary because I haven't seen a single ad on television in, in the, the two or three months that everybody, or, or get a single phone call for anybody uh, running in the in Democrat side. So I guess maybe they've just given up on Texas, which would be... Fine by me. Well, they vote early and often. Yes, no. That's a that's a time honored tradition in the time honored in the tradition of Lyndon Baines Johnson. I know. All right. Enough frivolity. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer so we can all make sure we're ready to stay the word, focus, that we're in right relationship with God, and uh, God the Holy Spirit can use his time profitably in our spiritual growth. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful we can be here this evening as gathered together in fellowship around the teaching of your word. And Father, we just pray that you would encourage us as we study your word and help us to understand your word and how to uh, apply it in our in our own lives. Father, we continue to pray for those we covered in our prayer meetings, praying for those who are ill, those who have chronic uh, illnesses, and those who are facing serious, uh, may perhaps life-threatening challenges. And we just continue to pray for them, and we continue to uh, pray for the group that's up in Colorado working on the uh, uh, building for the uh, camp where the Camp Arete meets, and we pray for them that they would be free from injuries and be able to get accomplished exactly what they need to accomplish, and we're thankful for the way you supplied the funds uh, for that operation. And we also pray for the camp this summer, began to pray for those who will be coming, those who will be teaching, those who will be uh, in the uh, counselors for the, for the uh, kids, and we just pray that they will all be uh, prepared as God the Holy Spirit prepares them for what they will study, what they will learn, that they might be challenged spiritually. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, this evening I want to do two things. As I pointed out on Sunday morning, I, we covered so much when I was in Israel last time, uh, last week. 
that I want to break this down a little bit and just hit some high points uh, each class, maybe spend about 10 minutes or so. And um, we had a little tech problem. I came up here and printed on, tried to print on the printer back in my office, which consistently never works. So um, I don't have notes. So I'm going to skip out of this. I'm going to show you a couple of pictures, and then I'll have to flip over to uh, the notes I made on the uh, the talks that we went through. Uh, this first picture, of course, you have me, and this is uh, uh, Mahig Mansour, and he is the uh, ambassador, Israeli ambassador to Nigeria, and he is also the minister of uh, religious affairs in Israel. So he wears two hats. He's been a consul general in the United States. I believe he was in, uh, in Boston, and we are at his home. Uh, he had addressed us on m- last Monday morning when the, our group went to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the morning. We had briefings from five or six different people. Uh, he sort of he was the first one to address us, and then um, the I guess it was on Wednesday or Thursday we were invited to his house. He's we're up on top of Mount Carmel, not very far from Haifa, and as you can see between us, there's a window from his house, and and it overlooks the the valley as it drops down to uh, Haifa, and beautiful view of Haifa and the uh, uh, the harbor there at Haifa. Now the interesting thing that I connected. Uh, when I was standing there was as you're looking down from Mount Carmel, if you're not, we've got a map later on I could point out, point this out, but the Mount Carmel Ridge uh, runs from northwest to southeast. So if you're looking at me, it'll run this way. And as the, and the only natural harbor that you have in Israel and the only deep water harbor is right there at Haifa. And what runs parallel to the Mount Carmel Ridge is the Israel, uh, Israel Valley. They pronounce, it's spelled J-E-Z-R-E-E-L, but they pronounce it Israel. It's the, the Israel Valley, and that is also known as the Valley of Esdralon or the Valley of Armageddon. Now, isn't that interesting? Because you have a deep water port right there that you can just offload all kinds of heavy ships. In fact, the U.S. fleet docks there, and they they bring in all of the heavy ta- uh, tankers and heavy ships come into the Haifa Harbor. So I believe that, as we covered in the Battle of Armageddon, that this isn't where the battle takes place. It's the staging area, and where where the Antichrist and the armies of the beast are gathered together. So this is where all of their supplies, everything come in, comes in, and is offloaded and it just moves right down uh, the Yezreel Valley. So that kind of put that together. We were at his house. He gave us a little briefing, which I'll go over in a minute. And then he gave us a little tour of the village, and we ended up in the home of uh, uh, Drew's family in the village. Now, I'll go over Drew's in just a minute. Uh, this is a was originally a sect of Islam that split off from Islam in about the uh, 11th century, about a thousand years ago. And there's a tremendous hostility between the Druze and the and and Islam. And that's very important to understand some of the things that are going on, uh, especially in Syria. And Syria is in the news right now. And I'll cover some of that in just a minute. But we went to their home, and about, um, and so they have a, a large guest room, and you can see that there were. Uh, there's a group on the far side. There's a group just to the right, and there's a group right to my left, where at the table where I was sitting, they brought out these big round serving trays that had um, seven or eight dishes. Well, let me see: one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten dishes on there. So there was, and there were like three or four people sitting at the table. So there was enough food to feed all of us at each place. And so there were five different, uh, five different places. So it was just absolutely fabulous. And it was almost as good as the Bedouin breakfast that we had out on uh, the Qumran plateau when I was digging with Randy Price the first, the first morning. That was uh, that was interesting. So here's part of our group uh, eating dinner in this guest room, and then we had a tour of the village. And this was a, a Druze man. He's lived in he lived in Atlanta for about 30 years, 
and is back in uh, back living in, in the Druze village. And and it's very important to understand what is going on uh, w- with the Druze. So I'm going to uh, leave this and flip over to my notes so I can just kind of go through this. Um, Mount Carmel is the home of a site of one of two places where you have uh, a collection of Druze villages. The village that where we were was Usfaya. There's also Dalyet El Carmel. And then there's another collection of two or three villages on Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is right on the Syrian border. And some of those families are even split and... Um, uh, you go, go, go to the, the, the fence line between Syria and Israel, and they will pass notes back and forth and talk to one another back and forth. Uh, the uh, Druze are a, a sect that split off. I'm not sure of the finer aspects of their theology. They prefer to be called uh, Muahadun, which is spelled similar to the uh, uh, to uh, the um, well, I lost that word. Another another Arab word, the Muahadun. They're Unitarian. Now, I'm trying to figure out how that dis- distinguishes from Allah, but that's what they emphasize is that they're they're Unitarian. They also believe in reincarnation, not the kind of reincarnation in Buddhism where you come back as a frog or a snake or a lizard or a housefly or something like that. You come back as another Druze. And they believe that there is a fixed number of Druze, and for whenever a Druze dies, and that person comes back reincarnated, so there's a uh, there's a fixed uh, fixed number. They, as I said earlier, they began in the 11th century in Egypt, in Cairo, when a leader by the name of uh, Hamza ibn Ali, who was a Persian dai or preacher. Uh, and Muhammad al-Darizai, which is where the term Druze comes from, you can hear the D-R-Z in his name, and um, uh, pronounced the sixth Fatimid Caliph to be God. And this guy was a little bit nuts because he didn't just think he was Jesus. He thought he was God himself. And so this created a little bit of a split with Islam. And so he is the one and only incarnation of God. He's God himself. He's not just uh, just uh, uh, Jesus. So they believe that uh, since that time, uh, since one, since 1043, they no longer proselytize. You can't be, go become a Druze. You're either born a Druze or you're, or you're not, and it's a secret religion, and you only get inducted into the secrets of the Druze religion if you decide to be religious. And so about two-thirds of the Druze are, uh, are religious, and then the others are, are secular. Or excuse me, one-third are religious, two-thirds are secular, and if you're secular, they're involved in many different things. They serve in the IDF because they believe in reincarnation. They're fearless in battle because they're going to come back, and they have various stories and anecdotes about young children who are born who know all about the life and uh, lives and friends and hiding places of people that they claim to be the reincarnation of. Uh, they sided with Israel in uh, Israel's war for independence in uh, 1948, and since 1957, they've been uh, drafted into the IDF. They serve as members of the Knesset. They serve as engineers, professors, and uh, merchants. There are about 160,000 Druze uh, who live in Israel. In terms of their uh, religion, they trace their origin back to uh, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, whose t- tomb is in Tiberias. Uh, they believe, uh, as I said, in reincarnation. Men will come back as men. Women will come back as women. They are monogamous. They don't believe in eating pork or smoking. There's uh, the For the religious, the secular can do whatever, but the religious can't smoke, can't drink, uh, can't eat pork. They have a one of their primary commands of their religion is to protect the area where they live. And so they are very committed in terms of uh, being patriotic to their government. Now, there's uh, uh, about 160,000 Druze in Israel. There are over 500,000 Druze in Syria. 
Now that's really important because they there's a that's a huge number, but they're a religious minority. And we hear about all of these atrocities that are being committed by the uh, Assad government in Syria, and that is true. But there's another side to this story that is one that Israel is very sensitive to, and that's what uh, uh, Mansour was uh, emphasizing, is that for, for the Israelis, they have to walk a tightrope here. They're kind of damned if they do and damned if they don't in terms of what they say about Syria. Because the uh, Assad family are Alawites, and an Alawite is another sect that's split off from Islam that is hated by the by the Sunnis and by the Shia. So uh, one of the maybe the only good thing that Assad does is that he protects the religious minorities. He protects the Christian minorities. He protects the Alawites, and one of the reasons that he won't step down is because they fear that if the the, the Sunnis who are behind this this uh, Muslim rebellion, uh, if the Sunnis take power, there will you think there's a bloodbath going on now? There will be a bloodbath of the Alawites, the Druze, and the Christians, and they will be slaughtered by the Sunni if they if if they gain power, and especially the Alawites, because they'll be seeking revenge for all of the horrible things that that Assad has done. So when you think about Syria being on Israel's northern border and you have all of this unrest and then all of a sudden um uh, if Assad were to leave, there, there's massive persecution on the Druze. Where are they going to go? They're going to want to head south into Israel. And so with the Christians and the Israelis are sitting down, they're going, we really don't want all these people trying to flood into Israel. So they really have a, a very difficult uh, uh, problem here. And, of course, and I'm critical of the, of the U.S. government and Western governments because we want to go in and, oh, well, let's put a democracy in there. We have absolutely no clue, no understanding of, uh, of what, would be, what that would entail and what the uh, consequences uh, of that would be. So there's, uh, there's this Arab, this so-called Arab Spring, which is really more of an Islamic winter. It just really brings an incredible amount of uncertainty and instability in the area. And one of the things that, that was emphasized by almost everyone who spoke to us is that in the midst of this kind of instability, the result of which we may not know for 20 to 40 years that Israel would be foolish to enter into any kind of peace treaties or agreements with any of these governments because you don't know what, how things are going to turn out in two or three years, five years, ten years, or twenty years. So they just need to sit and try to uh, maintain the uh, uh, status quo uh, as much as possible. Uh, the problem, as several pointed out, and as uh, I, I uh, would I agree with, is that. In the West, going back to President Bush, who had some great ideas, but I think is very foolish in this particular area, the West has the idea that the solution to the world's problems is democracy. But a democracy only works if you have a culture that is ready for democracy and understands the value of individual personal responsibility and values each person as an individual. And I believe that you can only get that if you come from out of a Judeo-Christian background. Without a Judeo-Christian background and a Trinitarian understanding of God, you cannot come to an understanding of Scripture. Now, of course, somebody may say, well, the Jews don't have a Trinitarian understanding of God, but they've got the Old Testament, which lays the foundation for their understanding of man. And even though they may not agree with a or understand a have a Trinitarian belief, they do have beliefs that come from a Trinitarian God, as, as we would articulate, because in a Trinity, the reason this fits is because as a Trinity, you believe in the value of the singularity or the one, and when that applies to society, that means the totality of your culture, but it also places value on the three distinct persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you equally value the whole as well as the individual parts that make up the whole. And when that applies to culture, that gives you a foundation for valuing the whole that is the entirety of the nation as well as each individual 
uh, within the nation. So the West has come along and thinking that a democracy in the Middle East is just exactly uh, what uh, what we need to bring peace in the Middle East, and all this is doing is creating problems. It's creating an absolute mess in Iraq. Uh, when uh, all of this Arab Spring started in January 2010 uh, in Egypt with Mubarak, it was... Uh, or in January 2011, it was just four months earlier in the autumn of 2010 that he had been in the White House and had been given a, a tremendous uh, welcome and he tr- tremendous celebration, and he is one of our honored allies, and three months later we threw him under the bus. And the message that that communicated in, in the Muslim world, especially to Muslim moderates, is that the West cannot be trusted, and that our agreements are not uh, are, are not worth anything. And so the uh, Muslim moderates now won't communicate to the West because we can't be trusted. We may turn on them tomorrow. So we have cut ourselves off from the only real potential allies that we might have. Uh, in, in the Middle Middle East. This puts uh, Israel in a real bind because they're surrounded by all of these Islamic nations. And I think that uh, it, in terms of all of the territory that the Arabs have, Israel is 1 625th the size of all of the land that the uh, Arab nations have. So they're just a, barely a drop, uh, a, a drop in, the, uh, in the bucket. Now, this instability that Israel now faces on the northern border, the southern border, the southern border, we didn't really get into. That's what's going on in, in, uh, uh, in Egypt. And so there's, there's not a lot of, uh, uh, they don't know what's going to happen there. They just had elections. I haven't even had time. I've been so jet lagged to even look at the, what the results were the other day. But I do know that there was a surprise in the election in Egypt which was on Saturday. I think Saturday's kind of a blur because I was flying from one side of the world to the other. But on on uh, either Friday, I think, was when the election was that out of the blue, uh, the number two vote-getter in the election was a, a guy in the military. The military is associated with Mubarak. So that just blew everybody away because that's what the Arab Spring was going to get away from. But it shows that they may be waking up to the fact that the Muslim Brotherhood, which is really the mildest form of radical Islamists in um, in Egypt, that the Muslim Brotherhood might not be the way to go. So you had a huge number of people who voted for this um, for this general. Uh, just a couple of other notes on. Um, uh, on the, the, that Christians have really been persecuted in Egypt. 300,000 cops, that's a, the, the Egyptian Christians are called cops or Coptic. And uh, in the last 17 months, um, 300,000 cops have left uh, Egypt. And that leaves nine, there were nine million cops were there to begin with. So that creates a bit of a problem. Now I'm going to go back to the slides here. Well, that didn't work. Let's try it again. Okay. Here is in the north where we were just a minute ago, and those other pictures was down in the north, sort of the northwest of Israel and Mount Carmel on the edge of the Megiddo Valley. This is in the far north of Israel. This is the Mount Hermon Ridge, and notice that it was, um, uh, there's still a snow cap end of, end of May. That's uh, unusual. So that morning, I didn't think about it. I got caught up there cold the last time we were up there, and I'm wearing the one day I decided to wear shorts and a t-shirt. The wind was blustery and it was cold and chilly. But we got an opportunity to go up right on the border, right on the on the fence, with an IDF company, and to get a look at well, over over my shoulder there between us and. Uh, Mount Hermon in the background is a flat plain that's referred to now as the Valley of Tears. This is where uh, the the Syrians attacked on Yom Kippur in 1973 across that flat plain. They had uh, three major prongs. This was uh, the northern prong, and there was a, basically a three-day battle here between 160 
uh, Israeli tanks and approximately 1,200 Syrian tanks. Major tank battle that took place there. And, of course, the Israelis uh, were victorious. And since then, it's the quietest border that Israel has. Uh, very, very quiet. And so we got that chance to go up there and to uh, spend a little time. All these guys are about 18, 19, 20 years of age, except for one of them. I didn't get a picture of him. He was a uh, American from New York who went over there to do a service after he graduated from uh, from university here. So that was uh, uh, great. And their company commander is the guy who's on the end on your right, and he grew up in Atlanta as well. He's Israeli, but his parents split, and he spent part of the time growing up in Atlanta. So anyway, that sort of gives you a little bit of an overview of a little different perspective on what's going on in Syria, not that we're in favor of Assad. Assad is a great, and Syria is a great enemy of the U.S., but there are a lot of layers to this whole problem that uh, we need to be uh, we need to be aware of. Okay, let's turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 7, or Acts chapter 8. Acts 8. We're talking about Samaria, Judea and Samaria, which is not only the historical name, but it ought to be the, the name we use whenever we refer to the area that most people call either Palestinian territory. Of course, if you're, if you're liberal and you're pro-Palestinian and anti-Israel, you use the term occupied territories. And uh, it's, uh, the historical name is Judea and Samaria, and that should be the name we call it by because words are significant in these political battles. And if you use the word that this is Palestine, then you automatically uh, implied that there is such a thing as a Palestinian people and the right to the Palestinians to have have their own nation. And even though today, since um, uh, 2003, with uh, Bush's policy, when he cl- first articulated that Israel should have, uh, there should be a two-nation solution, that's another whole issue, that there should be a two-nation solution, then um, there's been this movement to try to give the Palestinians some measure of autonomy. What's crafty about Netanyahu, and this is my personal opinion, is that I think he knows that because the conditions that Israel has set to establish a Palestinian nation is that they have to uh, recognize Israel's right to exist, which no Arab government has done yet, and they refuse to do. That was one of the big sticking points in 2000 in um, uh, Camp David II when, when um, Ehud Barak, who's now the foreign minister, and uh, Yasser Arafat met with Bill Clinton, and that was Clinton's last great pressure move to try to blackmail the Israeli government into giving up as much as they could to make Yasser Arafat happy. And Ehud Barak gave uh, Arafat everything but the kitchen sink, and that was uh, being offered too. And Arafat said no. That's because the Arabs at their very core do not believe is the, the Zionist entity. Israel has a right to exist. So I think Netanyahu is running a big bluff on him and saying that, uh, sure, we're for a two-nation solution, but here are the conditions. Number one, the the Palestinians have to recognize our right to exist. Number two, they have to completely give up all terrorist activity. And uh, number three, they they have to give up all claims to any land or to the right of return of uh, the so-called refugees. And they're not going to do that. So I think he's running a bluff, and as long as he says that, everything's cool, everything's relaxed. Uh, Israel has built a fence, which liberals say is apartheid, but they need to look up the word apartheid and actually study a little South African history to discover that it has nothing to do whatsoever with with apartheid. But all of this are just different manifestations of anti-Semitism. And people, it's very hard for people to understand that anti-Semitism today masquerades as anti-Israel policy, anti-Zionist policy, and really different different forms of this because uh, even uh, some politicians say, well, Israel has a right to defend themselves. They can make whatever policy they want to. We just have a hands-off policy. And if the U.S. takes a pure hands-off policy to Israel and Israel gets attacked and we don't do anything, that's tacit approval to another holocaust. 
uh, Richard Nixon in 1973 because his mother told him that one reason he's president was that this might give him the opportunity to do something for Israel that after the uh, uh, surprise attacks on Yom Kippur, when uh, the Israeli army was down to less than 48 hours' worth of supplies, Nixon going against Kissinger and the Pentagon, which said just just give them, you know, send over about three or four uh, uh, transports, Nixon said send everything over there. Now, if we have a president that has a foreign policy option that says we just don't want to get involved in anybody's activity or anybody's problems and takes a hands-off approach, that is tacitly anti-Semitic because you're saying, okay, we're going to allow the, the only home base, the only safe haven for the Jewish people in a world of anti-Semites, we're going to allow that to be destroyed. And that is anti-Semitism. I don't care what you say. So uh, we're focused here on the area of Samaria, which is uh, the area of the northern part of the West Bank today. And these areas, uh, Sebast is uh, ancient, uh, uh, ancient Samaria. Today it's called uh, Nablus. Because the Romans uh, rebuilt a city there, they called it Neapolis, the new city, and that sort of got compressed to Nablus, and then you have uh, Sikar over over on the right. But this is the area where Philip has gone and Peter and John are going to go. It's probably, as I pointed out before, in the area of Sikar because the text doesn't identify. It just says Philip went down to a city of Samaria and uh, proclaimed Christ to them, and we've studied this where the multitudes responded. There was uh, many healings. There were those who were demon-possessed who had the demons cast out of them, and the result was there was great joy in the city. They just had a party. It was exciting. They were they were celebrating because this uh, demonic oppression had been released and people were saved. You just imagine the excitement that that came as a result of this. And then we're told about one particular individual that's significant that the Holy Spirit singles him out, uh, Simon, who had previously been a sorcerer, practiced uh, witchcraft, and uh, is, is, uh, they, they had worshipped him. They considered him to be the power of God, a manifestation of God, not unlike the leader of the Druze back in the 11th century who claimed to be God. He is, by using this title, the power of God, he was in effect saying that he was an incarnation of God. But he becomes a believer. And in verse 13 we read, Then Simon himself also believed. And I pointed out last time that this terminology to believe in Christ is standard terminology all throughout the New Testament. That's what's required to be saved. And so Simon was clearly a believer. He's always treated as a believer. People try to read into this that it was a superficial belief, shallow belief, insincere belief, but the Bible doesn't add any negatives to it. It uses the same phraseology it uses of, of many other, other believers. Then in verse 14 we read, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. Okay, there's an important word there to receive. It's lambano. This is a word that that, uh, Luke uses in relation to the Holy Spirit as well as accepting the truth of the Scripture. It is a word that is uh, a synonym for belief. It is accepting something that is true. You receive it as a gift. And so they've heard that the Samaritans had received or accepted the word of God. Here I think it might be uh, even a little more clear to say the message of God because they're talking about the gospel message that Philip had proclaimed. Uh, the, that um, Jerusalem had heard that Samaria had received the word of God, the message of God. And what did they do? They sent Peter and John. Now why are they sending Peter and John? All that has happened is that they've trusted in Christ uh, as the Messiah and have, and now they're going to send from Jerusalem, the apostles are going to send Peter and John up there. Verse 15 states, who when they had come, come down, that is come down from Jerusalem, Jerusalem's high, and so whenever you go anywhere in Israel from Jerusalem, you're going down. We think of up as north and down as south, but in Israel, up and down refer to whether you're going 
up in elevation or down in elevation. So if you're going to Jerusalem, you're always going up to Jerusalem. Um, when they had come down from Jerusalem, they prayed for them, that is for the Samaritans, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So what, what's happened? First they believe, then Peter and John come, then they receive the Holy Spirit. They did not receive the Holy Spirit. This is all of the Holy Spirit's ministries for the church-age believer. They didn't receive any of them at the instant of faith. Now, today we do. And others did at that time. If you were Jewish and trusted in Christ, you immediately received the Holy Spirit. But these are not Jews. They're a separate ethnic group. They're not really viewed as Gentiles, but they're not really pure Jews either, and especially because of the ethnic hostility that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans, not unlike the hostility between Palestinians, Palestinian Arabs and Jews today. Uh, it was important for God to to demonstrate that they were of equal stature and equal position in the body of Christ with the Jewish Christians, the Jewish believers. And so then there's a, a parenthetical explanation in verse 16 where Luke says, For as yet, that is up to this point, he had fallen upon none of them. That is, God the Holy Spirit had not come upon them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is an important phrase because this shows that these, this ethnic group is, has been baptized, and it's not by the Holy Spirit because they haven't received him. So the only baptism to which this could refer would be believer's baptism or water baptism, which is by, by immersion. So what's happened is Philip has proclaimed the gospel. They believe the gospel. They have been baptized in terms of immersion as believers' baptism. Then Peter and John come and lay hands on them. And in verse 17, then they receive God the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important to understand how this fits within the structure of the book of Acts because there are actually four, quote, Pentecosts, unquote, in Acts. There's one related to the Jewish people in Acts 2. There's one related to the Samaritans in Acts 8. There's one related to the Gentiles in Acts 10. And then there's one related to uh, to Jewish believers in the diaspora in Acts chapter uh, 19. And that's what this chart uh, develops. And we see a comparison here. Now, one of the reasons we want to do this is because uh, within the modern Pentecostal charismatic movement, the claim is made that uh, in the original Pentecostal theology, now let me just remind you of what happened at the turn of the last century. On January 1st, or New Year's Eve, of going from 1900 to 1901, a young girl missionary attending a Bible school in Topeka, Kansas, where the, uh, the, the instructor there taught that that every Christian should experience what was experienced at the uh, on the day of Pentecost, and that um, and this had not had nobody had spoken in tongues yet, and this young woman's name was Agnes Osman, and she was praying that God would give her the gift of languages because they understood it at that point that it would be languages, and that she'd be able to speak Chinese because she wanted to be a missionary to China, and so near midnight that night, all of a sudden she had an, an ecstatic experience and began to speak in tongues. And that is the first modern expression of tongues. But it wasn't the biblical tongues because they soon discovered that Chinese, they, in Topeka they still had uh, you know, Chinese immigrants that ran the laundries down by the river. And so the next day she goes down there to speak her gibberish and nobody, none of the Chinese workers can understand her. So it wasn't long before they figured out that they weren't speaking real languages, but something had happened, so this must be the gift of tongues. And so experience now interprets the Scripture, and instead, see, remember before, when they're just exegeting the Scripture and they read glossa, the, word, the Greek word for languages, they think, oh, this is going to be real languages, human languages, known languages. But when it's not a known language like they thought it would be, then, oh, well, we, we're going to change our exegesis. We're going to change our interpretation of the Bible to fit our experience. And so they change their understanding of the Scripture to fit their experience. And this happens so many times. I cannot tell you how 
I have seen professors at seminary. I have seen students at seminary. I have seen pastors later on in life go through paradigm shifts in their theology because something happens that doesn't fit their understanding of Scripture. And rather than changing their interpretation of their experience, they change their interpretation of Scripture. But not on the basis of language studies, not on the basis of theological uh, developments, not on the basis of grammar or syntax. They make the change totally on the basis of their own experience. So it's an, uh, the principle is you always interpret experience by the Bible. You never exper- uh, interpret, your, uh, interpret the Bible on the basis of your experience. And yet... Uh, Today we live in a world that is so experiential that people don't even know that they're interpreting the Bible on the basis of their experience when they're doing it. You can hold a mirror up and say, look at that, look at what you're doing, and they have no idea because it, their experience is so real to them. This is what's called myst- uh, a form of mysticism. Their experience is so real to them, it has to be what they interpret it to be They can't even think that it could be something else. And it's very hard to talk to people like that because they have rejected any form of reason or logic as being valid. And and so since reason and logic are the foundation of communication and language, it becomes very difficult to talk to them. So in the charismatic movement, what they what they did was they looked at this experience of tongues and said, this is what happens when you get the Holy Spirit. So you have two different works of grace. You get one work of grace related to salvation or justification when you believe in Jesus, and then you get a second work of grace sometime after you're justified, and that's when you get the rest of the package, and that's when you get the Holy Spirit. And the the the, the necessary sign of receiving the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. So they connected those two inseparably, and that's classic Pentecostal theology. And it was in 19, uh, 1957 when you had uh, a, a, a rector, an Episcopal rector named Dennis Bennett in, uh, in Southern California, in Van Nuys, California, started speaking in tongues. He didn't leave his church. He classic Pentecostalism, they would... They would uh, be baptized by the Holy Spirit, speak in tongues, leave their church, and separate into separate Pentecostal denominations. That's what made you Pentecostal. And if you remember, uh, some of you can remember this, the women didn't wear makeup, they had the beehive hairdos, long dress, and they looked really, really sad. Then old Roberts came along and said, hmm, we don't need to look poor and unhappy, we ought to be rich and wealthy. And so that gave birth to, they, eventually that group gave birth to the health and wealth gospel. And so now they, they're, they're, they have lots of money. And the more money you have, the more God's blessed you. And that developed into what became known as the charismatic movement. So charismatic and Pentecostal are not synonyms. A Pentecostal gets the Holy Spirit. He, it's signified by speaking in tongues, but he separates into a, another denomination, Assembly of God, United Pentecostal Church in America, or one of the others. Charismatics stayed in their denomination. So you started having Baptist Charismatics and Roman Catholic Charismatics and Presbyterian Charismatics, which is a real oxymoron. And, um, and they stayed in their denominations, but they still held to the fact that, that speaking in tongues was the necessary sign of being of receiving the Holy Spirit, which was a second work of grace. So they're still doing the Pentecostal two-step, but they're not leaving the church. They're staying in the church. They're, they're going to continue to dance with the church that brought them, mixing all of my Texas metaphors that I can. So that's they're doing the Texas two-step, I mean the Pentecostal two-step in their now regular mainline denominational church. Now, that was a lot of fun in Dallas because back in the mid-'70s when I started seminary, there was a church in, I think it was in South Oak Cliff or Southern Dallas, that was called Beverly Hills Baptist, and it was a Southern Baptist church that had gone charismatic, and this was a scandal in the Southern Baptist Convention. And a lot of seminary students would go down there and they would have their services at night and people would stand up and speak in tongues and somebody would stand up and interpret it. And I knew a lot of uh, different seminary students 
who would memorize the Lord's Prayer or which is really the Disciples' Prayer or Psalm 23 in Hebrew. They'd memorize the the, uh, Disciples' Prayer in Greek, and they would go down there and recite this in Greek or Hebrew, and they would get the wildest interpretations. They didn't have anything to do with what the original language said, just to prove that this wasn't a work of the Holy, Holy Spirit. So the claim was that there's a set pattern. That's the point I'm, I'm getting at, that there was this set pattern that you get saved. It's an initial work of grace. And then when you dedicate your life or you have some other uh, spiritual experience, then you receive the second blessing, second work of grace. You receive the Holy Spirit, and you necessarily speak in tongues. So that's their pattern. And then they would go to Acts. But that's not the pattern in Acts. That's the point I want to show here. In Acts 2, it starts off with only the 12 in 2-1. They're already believers. There's a noise like wind, like a tornado coming through in 2-2. Then there are this visible manifestation like flames of fire over each one of the 11 disciples. And then they were told that they are at that point filled with the uh, Holy Spirit, and then they speak with, with these la- other languages that they have not learned. There's no laying on of hands, and there's no mention of water baptism until you get down to Acts 2.38 when uh, Peter says, uh, repent and believe and then let each one be baptized uh, in the name of the, uh, of the Lord Jesus. And so Acts 2.38 is the first mention of baptism. And it's got to be water baptism. I've heard people who say, well, that really wasn't, that's, that's spirit baptism. The spirit baptism is what happened when the spirit came. The water baptism is what is depicting through a physical ritual the spiritual truth of spiritual baptism. Well, in the second column, we have the order of events in Samaria. First of all, the Samaritans believed. Then we're told they were baptized by water. Still no mention of the Holy Spirit. They don't have a received the Holy Spirit, we're told, in fact. Then Peter and John come up from Jerusalem. So this is two or three days later. And then Peter and John pray for them and lay hands on them. There was no laying on of hands in Acts 2. Uh, Peter and John pray for them, lay hands on them. Then they receive the Holy Spirit in verses uh, 15 to 17. But there's no speaking in tongues. It's not mentioned. Now, some people say, well, because it's mentioned the other three places, it had to have happened there. Hello, what kind of Bible are you, Bible study method are you doing? You know, if it's not mentioned, that means it's not mentioned. We can't say something happened. It might have, but if, since in the other three places the Holy Spirit specifically informed us that it happened, then we ought to assume it didn't happen in Samaria. And there's a reason for that if we understand the purpose of tongues, and we'll get to that eventually. Now, in Acts 10, we haven't gotten there yet. This is when Peter has been commissioned by God and authorized by God to now take the gospel to the unclean Gentiles, to the house of Cornelius up in, uh, up in Caesarea in Acts chapter 10. Now, Peter goes up there, and he starts to proclaim the gospel to them, explain who Jesus was, and they believe while they're sitting there listening. They don't have a walk-the-aisle experience, raise their hand, dedicate their life to Jesus, try to uh, seek the giving of the Holy Spirit or anything like this. They just believe while they're sitting there in their seats or standing there against the back wall, and they respond. And the Scripture says that the Holy Spirit fell upon them or were poured out upon them. And that term, poured out, is used also uh, describing the baptism of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. So they, Peter proclaims the gospel. They believe while they're hearing. The Holy Spirit fell upon them. And then they spoke in tongues and praised God. Now, praising God is a generic term. It doesn't mean they said, praise God. That's a superficial concept. Uh, that's like people say, I'm going to praise God, hallelujah. Hallelujah is Hebrew for a command to praise God. But praising God, if you go to the, the praise psalms, most of the psalms after Psalm 100 in, 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 in the, the psalms are praise psalms. They describe what God has done. That's how you praise God is you describe the works of God and what he has done. You don't just say, Praise God. But we all go through, but not we all, but there are many Christians who go through this sort of infantile 
kind of language thing. And we just need to realize that is a characteristic of babyhood. When you have had a child, you know that that child is going to talk like a baby. And they're going to just repeat things that they hear other people say. And so that often happens with Christians. They, uh, they've been saved. They've been living in the context of their culture. And now they're a Christian. They want to look and act and sound like a Christian, which is all admirable. So they start repeating a lot of phrases that they'll hear from people. Uh, praise God, hallelujah, amen, and the, the shallow Christian verbiage. Unfortunately, we don't get them to grow out of that. They don't learn how to discuss and talk like an adult Christian. They just have to pepper every other phrase with some holier-than-thou terminology because it makes they think that it makes them sound like they're really walking with the Lord. But that's just the kind of mentality you can expect from a baby, and so babies are going to act like babies, so we shouldn't be critical of them, but we should realize that this isn't how, how adults act. So they spoke in tongues. Notice the order. They're baptized by water after they speak in tongues. In Samaria, they didn't speak in tongues, and they were baptized with water first. And uh, and then when we get to Acts 19, and there's no laying on of hands, then in Acts 19, this is a situation when Paul is in Ephesus, and these these disciples or students of John the Baptist come to Paul, and uh, they they have only heard of the baptism of John the Baptist, and they were baptized with the baptism of John the Baptist, which was a water baptism, immersion baptism, and they had already believed. They had believed an Old Testament gospel, but they haven't heard a thing about Jesus or the Holy Spirit. So Paul explains that Jesus is the Messiah and explains about the Holy Spirit and then says, you need to be baptized. He doesn't wait for them to go through a 10-week orientation class because they've already got a good theological understanding of the Scripture. They just needed to get the last couple of pieces in place in terms of who Jesus was and the Holy Spirit. And so they're baptized by water in the name of Jesus in Acts 19.5. Then Paul laid hands on them, and then the Holy Spirit came, and they received the Holy Spirit, and then they... Uh, spoke in tongues, in languages, and were prophesying. Now, the question we need to ask is, what's what's going on here with the spe- with the coming of the Holy Spirit and the speaking in tongues? And why does it happen to the Jews, the Gentiles, and these Old Testament saints, but it didn't happen with the Samaritans? And and, and there's an answer, I believe, to that. But we have to understand uh, the purpose for for speaking in tongues. Just a couple of verses I wanted to point out in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter said, repent, which means change your mind. And when we studied that, I said this goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, that Israel was promised the kingdom and the blessings that would come with the new covenant, which are related to the giving of a new spirit, the Holy Spirit, that this would happen when Israel turned. So as I pointed out, this is a challenge to uh, the Jewish people to turn and accept God, reject their uh, idolatry. And he said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I, I went to this because I wanted you to notice that terminology. The Greek word there is lambano, and it is the word that, that just it's a, just a generic term for receiving uh, receiving the Holy the Holy Spirit, and it refers to the whole package of all of the Holy Spirit's ministries in the church age, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, baptism by the Holy Spirit, the filling by the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts. All of these are all part of just receiving the gift of the Holy Holy Spirit. And so he's he tells them to be baptized. Now we're told then in verse 41 of that chapter that 3,000 got saved. That's a lot of people. And they weren't spending any time waiting to baptize them. Uh, Acts 10, which is the Cornelius episode, Peter, uh, Peter says immediately after they believed, they said, can anyone uh, forbid water to them? And they immediately get baptized. We'll see at the end of this chapter that we're studying in Acts chapter 8 that, that Philip goes down and uh, uh, explains the gospel, clarifies the gospel to this Ethiopian uh, eunuch. And as soon as the Ethiopian... Uh, uh, believes 
Then uh, we're told in verse 36, now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here's water, what hinders me from being baptized? They immediately being baptized by, by water baptism. So where did they get baptized when they were there on the day of Pentecost? Well, we're told that they were outside the temple, they were on the temple steps, and they have all of these, as they've excavated in that area, they have all of these ritual baths, which are known as mikvaot, that's the plural, the ot is the plural in Hebrew, the, the mikvah, which are these, um, these ritual baths that the Jews used to, before they went into the temple. And so this is looking across the temple steps. The uh, wall going into the temple would be on my, on the right. And you see as it go, drops down to the left, there are these, 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 uh, sort of cubicle areas, these squares are each, uh, ritual baths. And, uh, then this picture is from the opposite end. And there's something over 30 of these, uh, mikvaot there on the southern steps. Now if you've got 11, uh, apostles baptizing, then they're spread out. There's plenty of, there's plenty of water, plenty of opportunity uh, for them to get clean. This is a picture of what one looks like. They had stairs going down, and if you notice, there's a divider there on the stairs because you would go down one side because you're unclean, go into the water, and then you come up the clean side, the other side. It is a picture of confession of sin, of the necessity of being cleansed or sanctified prior to going into the temple precinct in order to worship God. A person had to be cleansed. So it's that same picture of what we do before every Bible class when we uh, when we confess our sins. So uh, that was just teaching that point in terms of ritual. So there was plenty of water and there were lots of uh, bathtubs, so to speak, a lot of baptismals right there for the apostles to use to baptize 3,000. That must have been a tremendous testimony to all these people because to go into the temple, you would have to go to the ritual baths and then you would go right up to the top of the wall there to the uh, Hulda gates and then you would enter through the Hulda gates and then go up some staircases which are all blocked off today, which is uh, kind of in the area of the Al-Aqsa Mosque and then you would come out up on top. And then you would go to go to the temple. Okay, now in this slide, in this map, I, I have here. Here's the area of Samaria and Sychar right here. Uh, here's Jerusalem, and so Peter and John come up here, and uh, now you had, they had the baptism, and then it's after that that uh, Philip uh, is going to go over, and eventually he's he. The, follow Philip's the green line. He goes down to Jerusalem, and he's going to go over uh, into this area where he uh, witnesses to the Ethiopian eunuch, and then he goes back up uh, this way to Caesarea Maritima, which is right on the coast, big city that was built by uh, built by Herod. Fabulous, uh, fabulous architecture, fabulous port. Now, just in the last couple of minutes. I want to address this issue of the purpose of tongues. Paul clarifies it in 1 Corinthians 14, 20, and 21. What's important about speaking in languages? It wasn't what was said. They aren't given the gift. Paul doesn't say here they're given the gift of languages so they can explain the gospel to people in a foreign, who speak a foreign language. doesn't say anything about that. There's no evidence anywhere in Scripture in fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, don't do this when an unbeliever is present because he's going to think you're nuts, you're drunk, whatever. Uh, its purpose wasn't uh, for, for evangelism. He says in four, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Brethren, do not be children in understanding, however in malice be babes. In other words, don't... Um, don't don't be immature in your understanding. Study, know what the Word of God says, and on the other hand, in terms of malice and and uh, mental attitude, sins, uh, be an infant. Be it shouldn't characterize your life at all. But in understanding, be mature. Then he says, in the law, that is in the Torah, it is written with men of other tongues and other lips. I will speak to this people. This people, of course, God is speaking to Moses in relation to the Jews. He's saying uh, the context of, of uh, that quote comes from Deuteronomy 28, 
49 and 50, which is part of the discipline that God says he will bring upon Israel if they reject him. And part of that discipline is they're going to hear the word of God, but it's not going to be in Hebrew. When God called out Abraham, God is saying, from now on I'm dealing with the people in the world via Abraham and the Jewish people. And all of the scripture is given in Hebrew with a few portions in Aramaic. But what uh, what God, sa- God is saying here is that uh, if you continue to reject me, I'm going to bring foreign powers over who will conquer you, and you're going to hear Gentile languages where you shouldn't hear Gentile languages in the Temple Mount uh, proclaiming the truth of God. So he says, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people. Uh, they should be hearing it from their own prophets, but they've rejected that, so now they're going to hear it from a conquering nation. And yet for all of that, they will not hear me. Now in Isaiah 28, 11, and 12, Isaiah reiterates the same prophecy, and the, the, the Assyrian threat is on the horizon. And in Isaiah, Isaiah is also predicting the future destruction of Judea from the, by the Babylonians. And he says, for with stammering lips in another tongue, another language, it's stammering lips because that's how it sounds when you don't understand the language. It's somebody who's just uh, talking gibberish. Uh, with stammering lips in another tongue, he, that is God, will speak to this people, to whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the word rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. That terminology is an offer of the kingdom. And so what Isaiah is predicting here is that God would bring the offer of the kingdom and they would not hear it. And as a result of that, they're going to hear uh, the scripture taught in Gentile languages, which means it's being taken away. Uh, their special privilege position of the Jews will be taken away. Deuteronomy 28, 49, and 50 is what originally predicted that, where the Lord said, uh, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose are Gentiles, it's the same word, Gentiles, whose language you will not understand, uh, Gentiles of his countenance, which does not respect the elderly nor show favor to the young. So you have this prediction from the law. That's what uh, Paul's talking about back in 1 Corinthians 14:21. In the law it is written. It's that passage in Deuteronomy 28, 49, and 50. So tongues, the hearing of Scripture, in, not in Hebrew, in a Gentile language, was a sign of judgment. didn't matter what was said. It was that Scripture was taught is a sign of judgment to Israel. So they hear it, Gentile languages, in the Temple Mount on the day of Pentecost. Judgment's coming. They, they, the, the, the Gentiles uh, are, are speaking in other Gentile languages. Well, that's the same issue in Acts chapter 10. Then you have the John the Baptist disciples are also speaking uh, they, they speak in languages, and this is going to reverberate through the Jewish communities in Ephesus and, and Asia Minor. Why, why not the this, this Samaritans? Because the Samaritans are sort of this, this bastard ethnic spinoff from the Jews. It's not, they're, they're neither Jew nor Gentile. Uh, the announcement of significance is what happened on the day of Pentecost. It's what happens among the Jews. It's what happens among the Gentiles. But the Samaritans are kind of in that ethnic no-man's land, and so there's no need for them to hear a message related to judgment. Uh, so they don't speak in tongues. It's not, it doesn't fit the purpose that God had for speaking in tongues. Now, all of this leads to an understanding of the receiving of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that's what we'll come back to uh, next Tuesday night. So let's uh, bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to say your word, look at these things today, and realize that as we look at the land of Israel, uh, whether we're talking about current events or we're talking about ancient times, the undergirding uh, reality is that the Jewish people were called by you for a special purpose in history, and that didn't disappear with their... Uh, the judgment of AD 70, it doesn't disappear today. In fact, what we're seeing by their return to the land, what we see by their um, the way you have worked to bless them is that it, it, it is a preparation for 
the fulfillment of prophecy, preparation for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It simply indicates that that these things are uh, preparations taking place. We don't know how long it will be, but it's another sign that the Bible is true. Just as the chaplain to Frederick uh, Frederick the Great said that the greatest evidence of the truth of the Bible is the existence of the Jews. Uh, we see that throughout history and even uh, even today. So, Father, we just pray that that as we study these things, both current events and the Scripture, that we realize it's all orchestrated by you, all a work of God, the Holy Spirit, and that where we need to be as believers is on the right side of all of this activity, that no matter what happens, we're prepared. Uh, we're prepared to uh, serve you in the midst of whatever comes. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.